remarkable things happen in our world is because of Genesis 3. And we're going to look at this passage and see why evil exists in our world, why our world looks so gorgeous and beautiful when you look at all of creation and the oceans and the mountains and the valleys and, and, and people and individuals, and yet, at the same time, it's broken, tragically broken, unable to be fixed. We're, we're going to see the reason for that here in Genesis 3 and remind those of us who are Christians uh, of the reason uh, of ev- that evil exists, the fall of mankind Um, But even in the midst of that, there's hope. In fact, the brokenness is God's grace towards us to show us that this earth is not all that there is, that there is something more out there, that there's something better out there for us. And so I want you to keep that in the back of your mind as we look, as we've been traveling through the book of Genesis, we saw the beauty of creation on display in Genesis 1 and 2 and in the creation of the universe and all of the animals and mankind in God's image, even God making a helpmate for the man uh, to be united in marriage for a lifetime, just building and building and building and building all the way up to this huge climax at the end of Genesis chapter 2 and then crashing so hard sentence after sentence after sentence in Genesis 3 to the point that it doesn't start getting Better. There's glimmers of hope in this, as we'll see, but we don't see much hope until really the end of Genesis chapter 4. And then it, all it really is is just brokenness on display and hope hinted at and promised. Brokenness on display and hope hinted at and promised, looking forward. And yet grace intermixed amongst this. Genesis 3 started with the temptation to sin. Uh, started with the serpent uh, and the woman and Adam who followed suit after that. Uh, it was followed after the temptation to sin when they actually ate of the fruit. We saw their response to sin. Uh, a bad response, albeit uh, one of covering, hiding, and blaming, and yet We saw that in Christ, in in the gospel, because Christ has died and risen from the dead, we have a better response to sin. Christ has made a better covering. We don't have to hide from him. We can hide in him. We don't have to blame others. Christ took the blame for us. And so we have those hopes. And so having seen the temptation to sin and then the response to sin, This morning in 14 through 24, we're going to see the consequences of sin, the consequences of sin. And like I said, throughout the midst of these consequences of sin, in the midst of the curse, in the midst of another covering, in the midst of a chasm that is set before us and and God, I want us to see the grace of God um, jumping off the page. So if you're taking notes this morning... In, in chapter 3, 14 through 19, I want you to note God's gracious 
curse for sin. God's gracious curse for sin. And you may be saying, how can a curse be gracious? How can discipline be gracious? And yet, for those of us as Christians who know our Bibles, we know what the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 12, that uh, discipline is done by the Lord out of love, by God's grace for us. Like any loving father would discipline his children, so God too disciplines his children. It's his love for us. It's his grace for us. And so let's look at God's gracious curse for sin. Uh, Up to this point, uh, we've had narrative in chapter 3, and all of a sudden in your Bibles, as well as mine, there's an indentation to this section of the Scripture, which sets it literally off the page and causes us to pay attention in a new way. God is speaking again. And He's spoken before this, but up to this point, uh, it's been one-liners. This is the longest speech we have of the Lord, and it comes in the fourth in the form of a curse. And the Lord speaks. And when He speaks, He speaks in this prose, uh, this Hebrew parallelism. He speaks first to the serpent, then to the woman, and then He speaks to the man. The exact opposite order of the questioning that we just saw in the passage before that. God calling out to the man, calling out to the woman. He didn't even give the serpent a chance by giving him a question or a chance to answer. He just brings the curse straight to the, the, uh, to the serpent. And notice who is speaking here. It's the Lord God. If you'll remember back in Genesis 3, 1 through 7, Satan, uh, the serpent, and Eve stopped using the Lord God as the name for God Almighty there. They started using this more generic name for God, and yet here Moses records God's words as the Lord God speaking to the serpent. And when he speaks, being believers in the 21st century, with the Bibles that we have, with the New Testament we have, with the book of Revelation, we know this serpent is Satan himself, is the devil himself. According to Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, and Revelation chapter 20, verse 2, Satan, this fallen angel, having indwelt a serpent uh, in the garden, is now being cursed by the Lord. And the Lord gives the reason why he's being cursed. Because you have done this. Done what? Deceived Eve, first and foremost. And led her and Adam to question God's word. Because you have done this, and he's about to lay out what is going to happen to him. It, it was a, a reminder to me of Jesus' words in the Gospels. When he says, it's recorded in Mark 9.42, speaking about children, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin... It would be better for him if a great millstone, a grinding stone, were hung around his neck and were thrown into the sea. The same is true of anyone who, like the serpent, 
deceived and led one of God's little ones to sin here. And this, this curse is way worse than a millstone being tied around his neck. The serpent is cursed in, in a couple different ways. Cursed are you, the Lord God says, above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. And on your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. The, the serpent, some even think, may have had legs before this. And that even in this curse, there is a, uh, a discipline, a, a taking away from what the Lord had given, making him now lower than the livestock, lower than the beasts of the field. And, and on his belly, he will go from here on out, eating the dust of the earth. And, and not just for a season, but, but for a time. Notice th- this is a, specifically a curse on the serpent as a reminder in the future of this curse and this, this promise. And this curse will not even be turned around in the new heavens and the new earth. In fact, in Isaiah chapter 65, it talks about how the lion will dwell with the lamb and yet the serpent will still be on the dust. So this will be a reminder, uh, even in the new heavens and the new earth, uh, of what had happened back in Genesis chapter 3, what we were saved from in that. But then there's specifically a, a curse on Satan. Look in verse 15 there, where it says, I will put enmity, hatred, if you will, between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. And he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Uh, Theologians since the second century have called this verse, this promise, this part of the curse, the proto-evangelion. Fancy word for the first proto-evangelion gospel, the first gospel. Second century, this is recorded. Uh, Christians have seen this hint of hope in the midst of this curse for hundreds and thousands of years. And and we would do well to to dive into it and see it ourselves. So if you're unfamiliar with this, I hope that you learn something new, but I hope it uh, pushes you forward to, to worship and to hope in Christ as we see God's gracious curse uh, for sin. We read, again, the Lord God says, I will put enmity, hatred between you, serpent, and the woman. Obviously, this speaks of the hatred of women and snakes, right? Uh, from a lifelong generations long, millennia long hatred. I caught caught one of them camping and saw another bigger one that I was a little more fearful of. And Joy wanted nothing to do with this snake. That's there. That's present. Wise people would have a hatred of snakes. Uh, But it says so, so, so much more than just mankind not not liking snakes. There's a hatred here between 
uh, Satan himself and mankind. Uh, enmity between you and the woman. But also, in the second line, it says, and between your offspring and her offspring. Uh, some smarter than myself know Hebrew way better to point out the fact that his offspring is actually a plural word there. And so when it speaks of his offspring, it says that there are many, and yet her offspring is singular. There's one singular offspring of the woman that God has in mind when he says that there would be enmity there between them. We get another hint in the next line where it says, He, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So this one singular offspring of the woman is a singular male offspring that's to come. So let's consider first, who, who's the, the serpent's offspring? Well, the Bible uh, makes it clear that it's not talking about the baby snakes that are coming after this serpent. It's not talking about um, reptilian descendants and offspring of this snake. Uh, no, it's talking about the spiritual, if you will, um, offspring of the snake. The, the New Testament helps us with this to, to show that because it was Satan and the serpent, in, in the form of the serpent, who deceived Eve and led them to sin, uh, all of those who inherit the sinful nature of man and woman uh, are by nature, as Ephesians 2 says, children of wrath, um, sons of disobedience. John chapter 8 Verse 42 through 44 gives us even more clarity. When Jesus was speaking, he says, If God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God, and I am here. And I came not of my own accord, but he, God the Father, sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? Jesus says, it is because you cannot bear to hear my word. Listen, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies... He speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So who is the serpent's offspring? It's, it's all who don't love God. It's all who have not put their faith in Jesus Christ as God's Son and our Savior. And all of us have been in that category as children, offspring of the devil at one point. Until those of us who heard the gospel with a new heart to believe put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And so we, we were all children of the devil, not loving God, hating God, in fact. First John chapter 3, verse 8 helps us even more. Whoever makes a practice of sinning 
is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Note in both of those verses, from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And so if, even if someone claims to be a child of God and yet continues habitually, unrepentantly in sin, they are not a child of God. They, according to the New Testament, are a child still of the devil and need to repent, need to be- believe, which makes the doctrine of adoption so be- much more beautiful, knowing that we were sons of and daughters and offspring of Satan himself because of sin, and yet by faith in Jesus Christ can be adopted into God's family and be given a new heavenly father uh, with new brother in Christ, new brothers and sisters in the church. It's a beautiful thing. And so those who don't love God, those who sin and have that sinful nature are the offspring of the serpent. So then we ask, well, who's the woman's offspring? Who is this singular male offspring of the woman? Theologians, again, since the second century have seen this as the one and only Son of God, Jesus Christ himself. And when you read those last two lines of Genesis 3.15 where it says, He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel, It's pointing us forward, shooting us forward to the cross where Satan will, in fact, bruise the heel of Christ, and Jesus himself will die, at least for a time, because as we celebrate and have celebrated for 2,000 years as a church, Uh, This week on Easter, he died and was buried and he rose again. Praise the Lord. And so when you think about stubbing your toe or bruising your heel, it hurts uh, really bad. I have yet to really know about someone who's bruised their heel, though, and lost their life forever. Uh, We've known a lot of people whose heads, though, have been bruised, concussions, accidents, time and time again. Uh, That is a fatal blow being described in this language here. And that's the fatal blow that, that Christ brings upon Satan through his death and his resurrection and eventually at uh, the lake of fire in Revelation 20. Uh, The New Testament apostle Matthew quotes Isaiah chapter 714 in speaking that this singular male offspring of the woman is the Son of God. In Matthew 123, behold the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. It's God's Son who is going to be the one who is then given to the woman to be this singular male offspring. Or Luke chapter 1, verse 35, the angel answered her, Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. It's Christ. 
Right here in these Old Testament passages, without the word Jesus, without the word Christ, without the word cross, without the word resurrection, these verses are pointing us forward to those moments that were to come. That Adam, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, all of the people of the Old Testament were looking forward to. And yet here we are 2,000 years after Christ, we're looking backwards and we see them in such great clarity. You know, this morning we sang a song, Come Behold the Wondrous, what's the word? Mystery. Much of what was a mystery for Adam on this day is no longer a mystery for us. Because of God's grace and giving us his very own son and giving us his very own word recorded for us to read these things. And so we we praise him for that. We're thankful to be on this side of of history. This points us forward. Uh, Again, as Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 mentions, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, speaking of mankind, It says that he himself likewise partook of the same things, that is, flesh and blood, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is who? The devil. Jesus came to be one of us so that he could live a sinless, perfect life, die the death that we deserve rise from the dead uh, and, and conquer sin and death. Conquer this curse even. Colossians 2.15 says that he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, triumphing over them in him. Galatians 3.13, Christ Jesus himself became the curse for us. This is the hope that we have. This is the gracious aspect of this curse in Genesis chapter 3. The, the New Testament helps us to, to see our hope even in this. Jesus references uh, a serpent in, uh, in John chapter 3. And in Numbers 21 is the passage that Jesus is referencing And it's a passage when the Israelites had sinned and complained because of their lack of water, their lack of food, and their hatred for manna. And their sin um, brought about a curse and a judgment of God sending serpents among the people. And when they were bit by the serpents, they died. Uh, Their sin brought about death through the biting of a serpent. See it? And and so they went to Moses and said, God, Moses, pray to the Lord and ask for God to take take the serpents away. And rather than that, the Lord gave them a way of salvation in dealing with the bite of sin and the serpent. He told Moses to take bronze and and copper and make a snake and attach it to a pole and tell everyone who is bit by a serpent, 
and will die because of their sin to look at this serpent on a pole and they, they will be healed. They'll be saved. So fast forward thousands of years to the time of Christ, Jesus himself says, I'm, the, I'm better than that serpent on the pole. I'm going to be like that serpent on a pole, myself lifted up on a tree. And anyone who looks to me, though they may have been bitten by the serpent and the, the sin of death and the curse, look to me, Jesus says in John chapter 3, verse 14. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. Just before, Jesus says, for God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. This is the graciousness, the hope that we have in this curse, even just to the serpent in these verses. We see the source, the reason for the brokenness in the world, and yet in the midst of it, we see hope. We see grace. We see Christ as our only hope in dealing with these things. But he doesn't stop with the serpent. He moves to the woman. And we'll be able to move a little faster here. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, and he shall rule over you. Uh, Both of The curses to the woman and to the man are going to be seen as disruptions to the goodness of God in Genesis 1 and 2. The provision of God to the distinct man and woman in Genesis 1 and 2 are going to be disrupted here. Even the first and second commands that God gave Adam and Eve in Genesis 1 and 2 to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, are disrupted here in the woman. The the second command to subdue the earth and have dominion over it will be disrupted and distorted in the curse to the man. And so have that in the back of your mind, having already traveled through Genesis 1 and 2, remember the goodness of God in all of creation and His provision and commands, and now they're, they're being disrupted. And the first one is, is just specifically in pain and childbearing. Here we see pain introduced and coming upon the woman in the midst of childbearing. And all you women who have had children can give a hearty amen to this moment, to the pain in childbearing. And yet, the epidural has not removed the curse. And even without the epidural, just bearing through childbirth is not a badge of honor to say, I dealt with the curse. Pain in childbearing is more than just physical moment of giving birth. But those of you who are mothers know that there's pain in raising children year after year, 
week after week, day after day. It's not easy. Many tears, many uh, toils go in to that. Many sleepless nights. Joy, you're tempted to allow your joy to be removed in those moments and, and to focus on your situ- situation rather than focus on the Lord. This isn't just physical pain, but this is emotional, relational pain. Your children will sin against you, mothers. You, mothers, will sin against them. There will be brokenness, pain, and hardship in those relationships, but it wasn't supposed to be that way. When that happens, we are to be reminded that there is not only brokenness, but there is something more. There's something more waiting for us in the new heavens and the new earth. This is a reminder to women and to men in the midst of painful childbearing that uh, things are not as they should be, that children are not our hope, that children are not our salvation, and to look to Christ for that. But there's a second aspect of the curse where it says, your desire uh, shall be contrary to your husband, and he shall rule over you, or Your Bible, mine actually says, your desire shall be for your husband, an older version of the ESV. That idea there is is not in that her attractional desire is now for her husband. It's that her desire for her husband's God-given role as sacrificial leader of the family is now her desire. And that there will be a brokenness, even in their relationship, of, of those roles going on in their, in their marriage. That same word is actually, um, we'll see it later on in Genesis chapter 4, verse 7, where speaking of sin, it says, And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you. Or, or its desire is for what you have, but you must rule over it. We see that there is a disruption in the beauty uh, of marriage. The fact that God had made a helpmate for Adam in Genesis chapter 2 is now disrupted. And there's going to be a, uh, a fighting against roles, a fighting against places, a fighting against what God had designed in the beginning. We've all experienced this, those of us who are married, and even if you're not married, you watched maybe your parents experience this, or you've watched others experience hardship in marriage. And when we face that, it's another one of those moments where we say, why? Things are not as they should be. This is not how God designed this in the beginning. There's something more to this, and there will be. There will be. Marriage, as the New Testament says, is actually uh, pointing to what Christ has done for us in giving his own life. And it points us to the church's reaction and response to that, in that the church is to submit and to respect Christ and to worship Christ there. Jesus showed us the perfect example in this. 
the church is to follow Jesus Christ in that. And yet here in, these ver- in this one verse to the woman, we're reminded that sin, deception, temptation brought about this curse. And yet the Bible helps us to see God's grace in this. To the man, to Adam in verse 17, he gives, like he did to the serpent, the reason for which he will experience the curse. Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Adam listened to the voice of his wife over the voice of the Lord. It's not that listening to your wife isn't a wise thing, husbands. It's that listening to your wife over and above or even contrary to the Lord is wrong, is sin. That's what Adam did in this place. He listened to Eve, who was deceived by the serpent, and he himself ate. And he himself took the, uh, the weight of the punishment for, for sin, even above Eve. And so because of that, God says, in the middle of verse 17, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust. And to dust you shall return. Like the curse of the woman was the disruption of the first commandment. The curse here to the man seems like a disruption to the second commandment, to subdue the earth and have dominion over it. Both of these curses are disrupting and distorting the purposes of man and woman in their distinct genders and and roles here. It doesn't say here that work is cursed. It says that which we will be working with is cursed. Work was given to man before the fall of mankind. So stop complaining about the privilege that we all have in going to work and to provide for the needs of our family. The curse comes in the form of any time we're trying to be productive, it's going to be hard. There's going to be hardship. There's going to be toil. There's going to be sweat. There's going to be the temptation to find no joy in it. There's going to be the temptation to uh, become a workaholic. There's going to become a temptation to trust uh, and put your hope in work rather than trust and put your hope in the Lord. There's all kinds of temptations that that this curse is, is going to bring, but all the while when we're persevering through the hardness of work, we are to remember that it wasn't always this way. And it won't always be this way. I think there will still be work, aspects of work in the new heavens and the new earth. But they won't be painful toil. In fact, when the woman and the man are promised pain 
in fulfilling these commands of the Lord. Uh, We're promised in the New Testament that the new heavens and the new earth will be a place without any pain, without any tears and, and worthless toil. It will be a place of fruitfulness and a place of abundance there. And so these curses, they remind us that things aren't always the way that uh, they were designed to be. We're to put our hope in something more than work. We're to put our hope in something more than children. We're to put our hope in something more than our spouses. We're to put our hope in the Lord. But that's been disrupted. And yet there is a promise and a hint here that things won't always be this way, that there will be a a way of salvation, a way that's made in the future. Even this very curse for those who put their trust in the Lord, for those who put their trust in the singular male offspring of Eve, who is Jesus Christ, who dies and rises from the dead, we too will have the privilege uh, of crushing the head of Satan with Christ himself. Uh, Romans chapter 16 verse 20 gets at that and says, Satan will be crushed under your feet. And so we have that hope that the curse will be reverted back to the way that it was originally designed to be one day. But then after this this prose, after this speech of the Lord in verses 14 through 19, we get a couple other sections. In verse 20 and 21, I want you to note the, God's gracious covering of shame. Having seen God's gracious curse for sin, we now see God's gracious covering of shame. It, it starts in verse 20. And says, and man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Remember, when they were commanded not to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, they were promised that if you do, on that day you will surely what? Die. And yet here, Adam, who had been given by God the privilege and honor of naming all the creatures in the garden, naming um, the, the, uh, the helpmate that God gave him, woman, earlier. Now here he names her life. They didn't physically die immediately. And Adam names his wife Eve, life. Every time he looks at his wife, he's reminded of God's grace, and he calls her life, because not only are they still experiencing God's grace and life with every moment that they're breathing in air and breathing out, she is going to be the one who is going to give birth. Adam heard the Lord curse the serpent. He heard that not Not only would they not die in that moment, but that she would have an offspring. Adam hoped in that. They hadn't had a child yet, but hoped that that promise would come to fulfillment and that she would give birth to an offspring. 
and that one offspring down the road would eventually bring about the salvation uh, of man. And so God's grace here is even in Adam's naming Eve in that there's life there. But we also see God's grace in covering their shame in verse 21 where it says that the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Back in Genesis chapter 2, as soon as they ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they took fig leaves and they began sewing together uh, loincloths for them to cover their own nakedness and their own shame. And God looked at that and said, that's not enough. It's not enough for you to simply take inanimate leaves and sew together something covering you. No, I said that when you eat it, you would surely die. And by my grace, you're not going to die, but someone is going to die in your place. And so God took one of the creatures that he created, no death up to this point, no blood up to this point, no extinguishing of life up to this point. And God, the one who gave life, is the one who initiates taking life because of the sin of Adam and Eve. And he takes the life of one or maybe more animals and he gives those skins to Adam and Eve to cover their nakedness, to cover their shame as a result of their sin. Every time they look at themselves in the proverbial mirror, if you will, they are reminded that it was their sin that brought about death. And the fact that Adam named his wife Life, Eve, and that they're still living and breathing is a reminder to them that things aren't as they should be because of their own sin. They brought forth death, but by God's grace, God substituted an animal in their place to die for them. You can't read those verses as a Christian 2,000 years after Jesus died on the cross. Jesus, who is called by his forerunner, John the Baptist, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You can't read those verses and not see it pointing us forward to the grace of God in Jesus Christ. He who not only is our high priest, but unlike all the priests of the Old Testament who sacrificed the Lamb, Jesus himself became the Lamb and got up on the altar and shed his own blood. And it was his blood that became our covering for sin. Who is it, church, in the New Testament who says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life? I'm the Eve. I'm the living. Or in John chapter 11, just before John 14, 6, in John chapter 11, verse 25, where Jesus tells Martha, whose brother had just died, I am the resurrection and the life. There is God's grace all over these two little verses in the naming of Eve and in the covering of their sin and shame that was brought forth. We read this through the lens of Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11 through 14. 
where the writer of Hebrews says, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once and for all into the holy places. Remember that. Not by the means of the blood of goats and of calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more, church, will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve a living God. The brokenness in our own lives, every time we fall into sin, every time we see brokenness brought about because of our own sin, we ought to remember the sacrifice of Christ and the blood that He shed for us. Every time we wake up and take a breath in, and breathe and open our eyes to be able to enjoy another day of life, we ought to give thanks to God who is gracious and sent His one and only Son to take the death that we deserve. But lastly, we see God's grace on display in a chasm of separation. God's gracious chasm of separation in verses 22 through 24. says, then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, dot, dot, dot. God's words, Moses stops recording God's words and essentially says what Uh, God did in that moment. Rather than continuing the monologue of the Lord, he just told what the Lord did in that moment. Uh, Satan was partially right. Even though man and woman were made in God's image after his likeness, they did become a little more like God in one form and fashion. That is that they now know good and evil. Before that, they just knew good, and they were more like God then than they wished they could have ever been. But now they're like God, unfortunately, in this way of knowing good and evil. And, and as a result, lest they stay in the garden and continue to eat of the tree of life and know the consequences of sin forever, have to deal with the brokenness of sin forever. God graciously kicks them out of the Garden of Eden. And we often look at that and, and just think, ah, oh, what a bummer, that, that stink. But this is God's grace. This is God's grace to them so they don't live in that broken state forever. God sends them out. Listen to what he does in verse twenty. 
Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground that he was taken. He drove out the man. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim, a giant angel, and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the, true, to the tree of life. I mean, almost every phrase in 23 and 24 is showing us this chasm being given to mankind, separating now God from mankind. And yet, even in the midst of that is, is God's grace on display. When, we, when they are being sent and drove out east of the garden, they're feeling the weight of their sin. And hopefully, in, in those moments, they're broken over their sin rather than enjoying it and running towards it. God's discipline, the, the chasm that is set before us is to, to show us that something's broken, something's wrong, and, and that we need help, that we need a Savior, that we need to be drawn back. But there, there is this chasm between mankind from Genesis 3 onward that is impossible for man to get back over. I don't care how strong you are or, or what kind of skills or what kind of strategy you have to get past the cherubim and some flaming swords that the Lord himself put in place for you to get back to him, but it ain't happening. Just read every encounter of mankind with an angel in the Bible, every one of them. Whenever you see them, prostrate on the ground, humbled, begging for God's mercy. This passage is saying there is no way for mankind to get back over this chasm on their own. But thanks be to God, that's not where it ends. There's more. We've got more Bible ahead of us. Uh, We have more Bible looking back at these things. The people reading this passage that Moses was writing it for, the people of Israel, week in after week out, month in after month out, are wandering around in the wilderness, setting up a tent, tearing down a tent. They're camping all over the wilderness. And as they're camping and they set up this tent, according to God's instructions, on the veil that separates God's place, his holy of holies, the Garden of Eden, if you will, is a giant cherubim embroidered into the veil on the holy of holies. And so these people are wandering through the wilderness time and time again, setting up a tent, tearing down a tent, moving and following the Lord, setting up a tent and tearing down a tent. And right there, They are reminded of the chasm that separates God from man. This cherubim embroidered on this veil that only one person could enter in through once a year and offer sacrifices for the sins of the people. And it's that same veil that when Jesus dies on the cross, 
the Bible records the veil being torn into. There's no more cherubim and flaming sword blocking the way between mankind and God. There's no more chasm that you have to attempt to cross on your own. Christ has opened the way. He's made a way for mankind in our sin, deserving death, to be able to enjoy life, to be forgiven, to be saved. And it's in Christ, in Christ alone. Each and every section of this, this section of this consequences of sin, we see God's grace abounding more and more, specifically in the person of Christ. And Christian, you need to remember that. In fact, we're told in the New Testament to as often as we gather together to remember Christ's sacrifice on the cross by eating a piece of bread that reminds us of his body and by drinking a cup of juice that reminds us of his blood, his body and blood that were shed for us on the cross. And so, church, we're going to do that this morning. And we want to invite you to be a part of that. If you've put your faith and trust in Christ and you've been baptized and are following Christ, we want to encourage you and invite you to come forward and eat and drink with us. But if you have not put your faith and trust in Christ, if you, like us, look at this world and you, you say, it's broken, there is something wrong, why is this? I'm here to tell you that it's because of mankind's sin, not God's. And yet, even in the midst of it, God has made a way out, made a way of salvation in the midst of our sin. My hope for you is that you would trust Christ today. Rather than striving in your own efforts, you would trust Christ during this time. As we as Christians eat and drink and remember Christ, would you consider putting your faith and trust in Christ? So let me pray as we get ready to take the elements and to remember Christ and God's grace in Christ in the midst of the curse, in the midst of this covering, in the midst of this chasm that was before us. Father, we pray that you would make us even more aware this morning of the brokenness of the world, of the sinfulness of our own hearts and our own lives. But at the same time, make us more aware of the grace that we have available to us in Jesus Christ. Make us aware of the salvation from sin and death that we deserve that is available to us in Christ. God, there are real, significant consequences for sin. And we must learn to confess and repent and by faith walk in obedience 
again and persevere through the midst of certain consequences because of our sin and because of our choices. But God, let us do so all the while having our eyes and the eyes of our hearts on your one and only Son, Jesus. Let us remember that it's your blood that covers our sin. It's you who took the death that we deserve. You became sin for us. You took the curse and became the curse for us. Jesus, let us remember that by your blood and your body, you paid it all and said, it is finished. So let us remember that. God, I pray that those who have yet to trust you this morning would be convinced, persuaded, not by my words, but by by your words and your conviction on their heart to trust you this morning and find hope in the midst of a broken, fallen world. We ask and we pray in Jesus' name, amen.